Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Lindley Wall. Dr. Wall is a pediatric upper extremity surgeon who completed two fellowships during her training, the Mary Stern Hand Surgery Fellowship in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the Pediatric Hand Surgery Fellowship at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas, Texas. In addition to being a full professor at Washington University in St. Louis, she is also the chief of pediatric and adolescent orthopedics. She is a prolific researcher, as well as a contributor to the Congenital Upper Limb Differences Registry. It is my absolute pleasure to share with you this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Lindley Wall. Dr. Lindley Wall, we are finally doing this. We are finally like getting the chance to record this episode. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad we made it here. I know. So my first question for you, Dr. Wall, is in your own words, can you describe your background, uh, where you did your schooling, your education, and your post-education years? Absolutely. So I am a Midwesterner. I was born in Missouri. My parents were both professors at the University of Missouri, um, have recently retired, but I grew up in a very academic household. Uh, And then I left um, for college. I went to Duke University, where my extended family is all in North Carolina, so just kind of shifted. Uh, Had a fantastic undergrad and then went to medical school at Washington University, which is where I am now. I was there for four years. I stayed here for my residency. Um, I did leave for a while. I went and trained with um, the Stern Group, so Dr. Stern, Dr. Kefauber, and their partners in Cincinnati for my hand training. Mm-hmm. And then I did six months at Texas Scottish Rite um, with Dr. Zaki and Dr. Oishi doing uh, the pediatric upper limb. And then after that, came back and I've been at WashU for my career. I did not switch uh, my employer <laughs> in the first <laughs> two years, as many of us do, but I've been here now. I think I'm on my 11th year. Wow. So I've been here. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And can you tell us the story of when you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery? Yeah, so I um, came to medical school just wanting to be a physician, but I think pretty quickly I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, Probably happens to most of us. I was going to be a neurosurgeon. I was not going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgeon was, (laughs) yeah, they were all the jocks. I was not a super jock. Um, I thought as most people classically think it's like a guy field. Um, And then I went through my rotations and I saw neurosurgeons and I saw what they did and their patients. And I said, that's really not for me. And then I just randomly picked orthopedics because I heard it was fun. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of the last surgical rotation I did. And I said, and as I rotated on it, I was like, that's it. Um, And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And it really was actually my hand rotation, um, which is somewhat ironic. uh, That really showed me the clinics could be fun. You could really help people. It was, it was just a great uh, rotation and the personalities um, that uh, I saw were really who I wanted to emulate and I wanted to be around. So combination of the patients and the people. Nice. And so did you know about subspecializing? It's literally like a sub subspecialty in pediatric hand surgery. Was that during medical school or was that in your residency training? Yeah, no, that actually I saw in medical school. I, um, was given the opportunity to rotate with Dr. Paul Mansky, who is one of the 
godfathers of congenital hand surgery. So I actually got to rotate at the Shriners Hospital as a medical student, did a research project. And so I saw pediatric hand very early and I, I really jumped in quickly (laughs) and have been there ever since. Oh, that's awesome. Speaking of pediatric hand, I do want to talk about um, a registry that you are a part of, and and that is the Congenital Upper Limb Differences, or could registry. Mm-hmm. Um, for of you, for our listeners, the purpose of this registry, and this is a quotation from the website, is to characterize the function and health status of children with congenital hand and limb differences and to quantify improvements with non-operative surgical care. And you are one uh, of, there's one of 22 surgeons now from Uh 10 different sites from across the country. Can you sort of speak to the history of this registry, i.e. like why and how it was founded? Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, the result of the efforts of, sorry, of St. Louis and Boston. So mainly Dr. Charles Goldfarb, who's my senior partner, and Dr. Don Bay from Boston. And they came together. And they've both been in the field for a while and doing great research. And I think they just saw the need for a registry. They, this is the way to advance the care of the pediatric hand. So we, everyone was doing their own studies. It was really hard to um, combine and do multi-institutional research. And so with these very unique conditions, that's what we had to do. And so creating mm-hmm. a registry has provided um, sort of a database that we can all come to. We can all put our patients in. And then from that, we can do better research. We can answer bigger questions. Um, and we have a much larger um, group of surgeons for collaboration. And it has been um, very productive and been very fun, actually. And it's nice. been a great opportunity. Oh, that's so cool. And I would love for you to sort of humble brag and speak about what this registry has been able to accomplish. Yeah, you know, I think at just like a lot of registries in the beginning, it really kind of established a baseline with regards to the demographics and sort of how many patients have what versus, you know, classically in congenital hand, it was Adrian Flatt's patients in Iowa. And that was really like mm-hmm. our baseline for understanding congenital hand. So this has taken, um, kind of broadened our scope and what we we're able to look at. And then from that, we've kind of built on using patient reported outcomes. And so we're looking at specific diagnoses, um, a little bit more one point in time sort of in the beginning. So mm-hmm. how certain conditions and what their patient reported outcomes were, at sort of after we built on demographics. And from there, we're looking very um, closely at classification systems, which really puts a lot of people to sleep. But I love uh, looking at the classifications and how to classify <laughs> these kids and how it fits and then applying the developmental biology. Um, and so we're moving forward. We have more data on specific diagnoses and we have bigger numbers. And it's, it's just been great. We have nearly 20 publications from this. Um, wow. And we, we get together and talk um, and you know, one day we may answer some really big questions. No, that's awesome. What are some of the future goals of the registry? Sort of what are sort of the big themes or pathologies or conditions that you guys hope to address? Yeah, I think part of, I I would kind of look at, um, we really want to be able to educate families more on sort of how things develop. So I think being able to, our registry really helps us apply sort of some of the phenotypes and characterizing groups of patients and then um, applying that and working with our developmental biology cohort. So Mm -hmm. they have a better understanding than we do. And now we have all the patients and that can, that sort of complements each other. So I think um, we'll be able to better educate for families, but I think the real 
end goal will be to apply genetics to our patient cohorts. So now we have all the patients. So now we can actually maybe get some genetics and get some DNA sampling at some point. That's sort of what I see as the end goal. And then answer questions about how these arise and what are the conditions that we really need to look for. Yeah. No, that's so cool. You know, I recently did, um, with one of my prior interviews with Dr. Lejeune, we did this, uh, Mm -hmm. like mini journal club and it was so much fun. And so I'd love to sort of talk to you about one of your articles and, um, the article is entitled current concepts in upper extremity motion analysis room to grow question mark. Uh, you are the senior author on this article. What was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, so it actually went back to um, this really fantastic patient that I have. He was about four when I first started, or he was a little bit younger when I started taking care of him. He's this little, really intelligent kid with arthroposis. And um, what we did is we have, we oftentimes do a humorous rotational osteotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, to help kids um, with arthrogryposis position their hands better in space. And so he is such an incredibly smart little kid. And he came to me and I had taken care of him for his wrist and his thumb. And then he had told his mom he wanted his arm to look like hers. And so one thing, as we watched him use his hand, we did this osteotomy and it really improved the position of his hand. Um, but it was really hard to pull out and quantify how. And one thing I noticed when he used the iPad or when he was writing he would always have to look over his hand. And I couldn't quantify that well. And so what I wanted to do was to figure out a way to look at how he used his hand before and after we did surgery and we were doing it on his other side. We had done one, but not the other side. And I was trying to be able to figure out a way to explain how the surgery helped him use his hand better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we thought, well, motion analysis, we could actually look at how his arm changes and how he does tasks. And part of it was also how he was able to visualize what he was doing by not having to look over top of his hand, but to look sort of with the hand not being in the way based on the surgery. So that's how it all got started. Wow. And I would love for you to sort of explain to our listeners just sort of a summary of what kinetic motion analysis is and more specifically sort of how it's been applied to the upper extremity. Because I've always sort of known gait analysis, what have you, and lower Mm -hmm. extremity things. And I think for me, this article is so interesting because I just didn't even think of its application for the upper extremity. Yeah. So I will just provide, I think the best definition, I'll just kind of actually read it for you. So for kinetic kinetic motion analysis, for those who probably haven't read this uh, current concepts though, they should. Um, So it's a method of measuring movement through space and time by capturing both linear and angular displacements, velocities, and accelerations experienced by whatever structure it is of interest. So it's kind of like a 3D way of looking at, um, you know, the movement. So it was really helpful looking at joint movement and kind of seeing how the limb works. And so there's a lot of different ways to do it. And we go into depth um, within the article about that. And so, you know, what I knew it from in my training was more with like ACLs mm-hmm. um, and thinking about the throwing athlete. And there's that way it can be applied. But people are starting to use it like the thumb CMC joint. And I think within the hand community, that's probably where we're most familiar with it. Mm. How have you applied this technology to your own practice? Yes, I think, um, so first of all, that one patient, um, it is something that I am trying to build. I don't have the resources to do it for every patient, Um, but my goal will be where I really want to apply it is really in my cerebral palsy and my stroke population. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do a lot of surgery for these folks, but I want to see 
how what we do actually changes their function and how they use their arm with specific tasks. And I think that we can ask them their opinion, we can do different patient reported outcomes, but actually calculating and looking quantitatively about how they use their arm in space, I think that would be probably the most informative way, um, especially in my practice to see how I've helped them. Right. Do you have them do like certain tasks with like, as you had mentioned, the iPad or writing? Are there any other sort of tasks that you have them do with their arms to kind of see um, yeah. their function? Yeah, absolutely. I think each patient each patient population is a little bit different. So for our kids and congenital, we really like if for um, where the hand is involved, like the um, like the peg test, the um, box and block, different things like that that our therapists are really, really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for CP, I really like the SHUI, which was came out of um, the, um, the Shriners Hospital. It's a very measured exam. Right now we um, videotape and has different activities that they do, they cut Play-Doh, they string Mm -hmm. beads, they do a different um, sort of array of tests and we videotape it and watch it and it can be scored. Mm -hmm. But it would be really great to actually see how their positioning changes if we could add motion analysis to that. Yeah. No, that's so cool. I think one of the more um, like interesting components of your article um, is the barriers to implementation. And a quote from the article is that a central cause is the challenge of accurately capturing the complex multiplanar motions of the shoulder girdle. Although building kinematic models for the elbow, wrist, and digits is fairly simple, modeling shoulder mechanics has been done uh, or has been more elusive. What do you think needs to happen in order to kind of better understand the kinematics of the shoulder girdle? Yeah, so I think first kind of identifying why it's different. So I think all the other joints, or most of the other joints you mentioned are a little bit more hinge joints, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't, their direction of motion is um, not as, it doesn't cover as much space. So it's a little bit more more unidirectional um, or bidirectional kind of depends. So the shoulder has not only the glenohumeral joint, but the scapulothoracic joint. So there's Mm -hmm. less constraint on the joints. So I think it's a combination of those two. And then on top of that, you, then you have your skin, which kind of moves over the scapula sort of differently. So you're trying to put markers in different places. So the, I was did a lot of thinking about this, um, kind of especially when we were doing this. And if you have different layers of muscle and you have someone who maybe has more adipose tissue, it's a little bit harder to put your landmark, identify your landmarks, put your um, markers on for um, actually doing the measurements. But I think if we were in some way able to correlate the motion and analysis with potentially like live fluoro, I think mm-hmm. that would actually make it more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a whole nother way to apply, but having almost layering both the motion analysis with the um, actually live imaging, radiographic imaging would probably be the way to improve it. Mm. But it is a difficult joint to look at. Yes. I think something for me that I learned the difference between, you know, shoulder motion versus scapulothoracic motion and really understood that was in my world, the onc world, I had a patient who had a shoulder fusion. And what was so funny is that, you know, she came in for completely like, it was actually in hand clinic and it was probably like some like carpal tunnel or whatever. And she wanted to postpone surgery. And I was going through her records. I'm like, okay, pause. You have a shoulder fusion. She's like, yes. And I'm like, what do you like? And you would never be able to tell. And the amount of motion that she had from the scapulothoracic motion that she 
was still able to use, it was incredible. You know, like it's incredible. we, it's incredible. Like we do so yeah. much trying to like, you know, preserve shoulder motion and all these sorts of things. And I was okay. just like, she's doing just fine. You know, and there were certainly some things that she struggled with. But you never would have guessed it. Like you never would have been able to, you know, point her out in the street or, you know, as she's talking in clinic, I never got it. And so it's, yeah. it was incredible to see. And I, and of course I like was geeking out with my attending about it. Um, but it was so incredible to kind of fully understand if a person can't move the glenohumeral joint, how much more motion they still have with the scapulothoracic motion. Yeah. And it's very compensatory also. So the way that they're able to um, move their arm in space. And it's funny, I did a fusion shoulder, a glenohumeral fusion in a 16 year old and Mm. for a flail, he had a plexus injury, but he's incredibly functional, incredibly more functional with that fusion. So, yeah. yeah. Did you do, um, I, the only paper I saw was like the, I think it was, I don't know if it was Arciero or Mazuka at UConn where you basically like you it's the glenohumeral or so the glenoid and the humerus as well as up to the AC joint. Is that how you like to do your shoulder fusions or what, it, what do you like to do? Yeah. And I did a huge plate and yes, then I you just like put huge, like large fragment one plate. huge oh. plate. Exactly. Yes. And then I did, yeah, two huge cannulated screws just right down the pike. Yeah. So yeah, yep. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's so cool. Oh, 16. My goodness. But yeah, yeah it's just when they have a flail arm, you gotta, gotta help give them. Give them something. Yeah, exactly. give them something. Yeah. What role do you think kinematic motion analysis, especially with regard to the upper extremity, will sort of play in the future of orthopedic surgery? What are your sort of hopes and goals a decade from now or 20 years from now? Yeah, I really hope that it helps us to sort of guide our treatment. A, I hope it gets easier to apply and gets cheaper because <laughs> that's a lot of barrier and faster. Right. And so if there's some way to incorporate it, because I think it really gives us a better sense of what surgeries we, when we do surgery, sort of what the end result and the use of the limb, um, mm. and even sort of in assessing first injury and then sort of what our outcomes can be. So helping to get a better holistic sense of the limb function and motion. Yeah. No, that's so cool. Another um, kind of forum that you were a part of was this um, AOS webinar that was entitled Behind the Curtain, How Practicing Orthopedic Surgeons Balance Work and Family. Um, Mm -hmm. Other faculty members include um, Dr. Ann Van Heest, who is just, um, she's now our new president of the AOA. So big Uh congratulations to Dr. Van Heest. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Chris Bono, um, as well as Dr. Tamara Rosenthal. What was the inspiration, if you know, behind this webinar? Yeah, so that was Andy Bauer's like brainchild and she's incredible. She's a colleague of mine at Boston. And so it was, you know, we go to all these meetings and we all talk to each other and we see these um, folks up on the stage, you know, up on stage and we're like, oh, they all have families. And it's, you know, Andy and I are kind of talking and it's, we all think everyone's got it together. Right, And I think it's it's really nice to show, you know, not everyone's got it together. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you do, everyone tries, but I think that was it, you know, just trying to, it is possible to do, but it is always kind of messy and everyone figures out a different way to do it. And I, I remember, you know, kind of hearing talks and talking to people and thinking about, it's always helpful to take elements of everyone's experience and you put it together with yours to figure out how to make it work. So like I have two little kids. Um, five and seven, and just trying to figure out how to make that work with a big, mm-hmm. you know, a big practice, clinical practice, and, you know, trying to be an academician at the same time. 
And so we're always trying to figure that balance and the balance changes. And I think mm -hmm. that was part of what Andy wanted to um, discuss and like have everyone kind of talk about. Yeah. No, I think for us, it was, you know, the theme of embrace the chaos is something that was just so important exactly. because, you know, like, especially like, you know, we're surgeons, we're type A people, at least I am. And I like order and I like to do lists and I like boxes mm -hmm. and I like everything to be structured. And when you add, you know, a toddler into your life, it's just like absolutely not that organization. Like he's not following the check boxes at all. Um, and oh. it truly is those things where you're just like, all right, like this is what's happening today. We're good. We're solid, you know? And um, but I mean, it's just so much, it's so much fun and it really has helped me to like sort of center myself when I come back home and it's just mm -hmm. like, you see him running around, like he now, um, he, he now starts to run and he cheats every single time because <laughs> you say like ready, set, and he's gone after you yeah, just course. say ready. Like he doesn't understand, like you have to wait for go. Like that's yeah, that there's rules. There's rules. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he's just, he just knows it's ready, set, go. And everyone starts running, but he knows then. So he starts running at ready. And when he runs, he has his like arms behind his back for I, like, uh -huh. I did not teach him this. I was an athlete. I know how to run. I know the proper technique. And so he literally thrusts his arms behind him and just starts running like this. And I'm like, kid, that's not how we run, but it's just full force. Full yep, force. Mm-hmm. Oh my yep, goodness. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Gosh. No, what it's great. And I think in, until you hear those stories as a younger person, when you don't have kids and you're like, can I do this? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't, you, all you hear is that it's hard. So I think it's really good to talk about how yeah. it's possible and how fun it is. True. So, That's so true. Yeah. What What were some of the key take, takeaways in your mind from this webinar? Yeah, I think you you mentioned quite a few. I think we keep taking it away, and you should take it away every time you talk about it. But it is hard, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would never tell anyone it's easy. I think yeah. that's one thing. Um, it is hard, um, but it's worth it. And mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly important. And I think you do have to be flexible. Just like you, I think almost all of us are Type A. Uh, but realizing that you have to be flexible, uh, you have to make someone else's life is actually potentially more important than yours. Yes. <laughs> and that's really hard for us to see because it's never been that way until you have a family or you have someone else you care. Even if you're just living with someone else, it's mm -hmm. completely different. Just trying to figure out your own life balance. And we all do it differently. I think if you listen to the webinar, like we each had different techniques. We each were in different stages of our lives. Um, and then you have things change. Mm -hmm. So I do, I think it was very, I forgot who it was who said it to me and said, um, oh, Lindley, that will change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your opinions. Oh, that's not going to last. And I'm like, okay, got it. Got it. So, yeah. But it's so true because I feel like it, it, it's so unique to every single family. You know what I mean? Like yes. if someone, like some of my colleagues, their, um, their significant other literally stays at home and mm -hmm. just like that, like that, which is totally a lot of work. But like, like my wife, she has a full-time job. And so mm -hmm. it's very different in terms of it's, we both work on the household tasks, you know, right. like I'm folding laundry as I'm listening to like Miller review videos, as I'm studying <laughs> for my boards, you know what I mean? And so it's just like understanding that like you, and it's different for every family. Um, and I think just navigating that as well is, is just, it, it just takes an understanding for sure. Yep. Yep. Just grab different elements and apply them and see if they work and they may or may not work. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you wish you could have said to yourself as a resident that, um, like you as an attending now, you're like, gosh, I wish I knew that. 
Yeah, you know, I think as a resident, maybe not as much as like, well, maybe. I think as a fellow, I the one thing I tell fellows, because I wish I had thought about it in fellowship, um, was to do more clinic. And that sounds really silly. I love But clinic. do more clinic and just be all in. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think about it. Like, your fellowship is in... So I think the residency kind of builds up to that, um, just making sure you decide to really pick what you want to go into and really where your passion is, if you want to do fellowship, not everyone mm-hmm. does. Um, and then as a fellow, like that's your year, like you are all in everything, every moment you're being, you should just be a fellow and suck it in and just every clinic, every moment, learn everything. And I think that was, um, I think I did that, but I really wish I'd done more clinic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nice. Cause I think in, if, at least for me, selfishly in Ankh, it's very much like pattern recognition where mm-hmm. like seeing different masses and, and even just seeing, all right, that looks odd, but is that dangerous or do, does that need more of a workup or is that something we can just let fly and learning right. to have confidence and being able to say, go forth and nail it. You're fine. That's just the that lady's just weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or it's like, or you need to say, okay, like pause, let's do a further workup on this. Like da, 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 da. And being able to kind of get the pattern recognition, um, mm-hmm. of clinic as well. And so, yeah, yeah I, I love clinic, which is yeah. it's weird, <laughs> but it's just, I, I do love it. Yeah. I think it's interesting. So in pediatrics, it's, so I now just take care of kids Mm-hmm. primarily. And so it's what is going to be okay. So it's sort of the same thing. What's going to remodel out what's right. not. Yes. And it takes, and for that, it takes actually years to be like, oh, it is going to be okay. And mm-hmm. that takes a while to learn that. So if you can pick up some of that in your year, that's great. And you're yeah. lucky. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and it's nice. Like yeah. one of my favorite, um, I just texted my man cause I'm graduating or have graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite clin- like clinics that I've ever had was one of my mentors had his patient from um, 10 years ago had like this parosteal osteosarcoma of his tibia and mm-hmm. it had like an allograft and a plate, all these sorts of things. And he comes back um, because he was having some increased pain. And you talk to him, he's like this guy who's in his like mid fifties, he's doing martial arts, he's like doing all these active things and he was just having some pain. And we really asked him, um, long story short, is he was having pain at the end of his plate because it was sort of a stress riser. Uh And you realize that this guy literally is coming in because he's doing so much with the leg that had a sarcoma in it. And this patient was so grateful to my mentor is Dr. Friedlander and just starts, you know, I think the world of you, I got to see my kids graduate. I got to live my life. I literally, it was like the first time I've ever cried in a patient room Uh because I was just like, that's it. Like, that's what I want to do. And I just, it was, I was like emotional and everything. And, and he was, it was just one of those moments where it's like, that's not like, yes, in the OR, you get to do cool stuff, but like you being able to see you give someone's life back. It was just like, oh my God, I want to do that. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, it's that it's personal, just... con- yeah, it's a personal connection that you can actually, you change people's lives. And in your case, you'll save lives. I, I made a decision not to save lives. Well, it's no. for trauma. But, you, you, do, but you do, you no, do. Yeah. But it's different. You know, everyone kind of picks the, what, you know, what area that really sparks their interest. But it's, we really all do change lives. And even if it's a small thing, it means a lot, like mm-hmm. each one of those. And so you're right, like being in the clinic is where you really connect with people. Yeah. And I think even like with remodeling, like I think 
because you know um, my wife is not in medicine, I under I actually understand how people don't always you know get like the oh fractures will heal. You know what I mean? Like right. we understand that. Like, you know we're able to look at a distal radius that's or like a buckle and be like, wah, wah, it's fine. You know what I mean? But like other lay people don't, and so being able to like have that yeah. moment and provide them with reassurance and you're able to look at something that's like totally angulated, but you're like, you're five, you're going to be fine. And being able to like right. provide that reassurance to the parents. It's yeah. yeah. Cause it's their baby, right? Like their kid yes. broke their arm. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And you can't just dismiss that. Yeah. Cause that's important. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Well, Dr. Wall, I know we've talked a lot about the things that you've done in the past. And so I'd love to sort of talk about what your future goals and projects are looking forward? Yeah. So I would kind of look at it in sort of two different ways. You know, I'm really building. So I've, like I said before, I've kind of, I've gone all to peds except for spasticity. Um, I still see adults with spasticity. Um, and so I think for me, I really want to grow that part of my practice. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, so that's sort of clinically, I, and I really want to sort of focus some of my research in addition to our congenital research sort of in the spasticity cerebral palsy world and see what we can do and apply some of what I've learned in congenital to that population because I think it's really a population where we as orthopedists can really help um, but to also to understand what we are doing and how it's helpful and so I'm trying to I'm looking at that sort of through a qualitative lens and so I've been really mm -hmm. excited about that type of research um, and then on my other hat so I'm the division chief of um, peds ortho here at WashU and so for me that's a new position and I really excited to grow that our program and really right. kind of build it and grow it and make it into sort of one of the top programs. And so we're, it, we have such great faculty and have such great residents and training and it's a good program, you know, our department's fantastic. So really trying to work with our hospital um, and just, just really um, develop it and grow. And it's a, it's a different role, but it's been really exciting so far. And so I'm really looking forward to what we can do. Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. Wow. Well, Dr. Wall, I would love to move into our final segment, which is known okay. as the final five. And I ask these five questions to every single person that I've interviewed on this podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Okay. Can I pick two? Yes. A lot of people okay. do that. You're like, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Can I pick two? Um, first one, and I may not be the only one, the politicization, obviously, I think it goes, yeah. it's like unspoken. Yes. Of yes. course. I mean, I, yeah. Like Anne Van Hees, yeah. that was like number one. Yeah, go to of course. Thing. It was just like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so second one would be the wrist fusion and CP. Mm. And mm. the wrist fusion is, it is absolutely like the best surgery I can do. Mm. And it sounds horrible to everyone who no one wants to fuse anything, but um, the confidence and the social component of having a straight wrist. It's just night and day why patients love it. I mean, they just, they love that surgery and I love it because of that. Wow. You don't think about that. You don't like, I don't think everyone thinks about what that, like, it sounds like a morbid thing to do, you know, like mm -hmm. a fusion. Oh my gosh. But I think like, I think you and I both share this, like what it can still provide patients because patients have the, like, they're in a terrible situation and yet you're able to help them even, even yeah. though it is like, Oh, this fusion, but it's like, you're still able to help them. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. So true. yeah. Love it. Uh, question number two, what are your go-to topics for grand rounds presentations? 
Yeah, I think so. Our grand rounds, it kind of depends. You can either do sort of topic or it can be case based. And I just love the thumb. I think the thumb, sort of the pediatric thumb, is such a great topic because it sounds as simple, but there's so many elements to it. So you have polydactyl, you have trigger thumb, which you can still talk a lot about, which is crazy. Um, and then you've got the spastic thumb, you've got the arthropodic thumb. I mean, there's so many options. You can do case after case after case. So I like the thumb. That's, that's such, that's so funny. That's such like a pediatric <laughs> hand, like weenie it's, type it's, of, it, it, yeah. it's the thumb. You're, and it's so, it's so how intricate it is and how dynamic it is. And that's so mm-hmm. cool. Uh, question number three, what are your, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Um, I will, you know, I probably don't have one in particular, which is probably not, I know that was your question, um, you but I will just to. say my, <laughs> well, my passion outside of sort of everything we've talked about are um, doing mission trips. Hmm. And I think that is really, um, it's sort of like, you know, it's definitely much um, more prevalent in the pediatric world. But ever since I started my training, I've gone on different mission trips. And I think for each point as, you know, as a resident, as a fellow, and then now as an attending, I um, do these medical mission trips and they are just the best experiences. And I would encourage anyone and everyone to do them. And to me, that is where you get the most gratification. You're able to help most people. You don't have all the red tape of insurance and money Mm -hmm. and all of that. And you do help so many people. And to me, that's, you know, all of them are some of my favorite memories. Um, Mm. I just got back from the Caribbean. We just did a diagnostic trip where we just went and did clinic. Um, And I saw a 21-year-old with a flail limb from a plexus injury. And we have figured out how to bring him back here. We've got our charity support. And so we're going to bring him up here for surgery to help give him a functional limb. And it's just, it's great. And I love those trips. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Question number four, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Yeah, this has changed, as you can imagine, over time. I love my children, um, but they will not be my focus of this this question. Um, I married a fly fisherman. Oh, my gosh. And I will say that is now one of my new favorite passions. So he's incredibly good. Um, but I love to be outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the intricacies and the like science behind it. And so we fly fish when we go on vacations and we kind of now pick vacations based on that, um, which sounds crazy, but it's really fun. And so I'm hoping to, um, maybe the next time we meet, hopefully before that, I will, um, get a chance to actually do some saltwater fishing down in the Keys, which is sort of, um, re- I don't know, incredibly exciting, the big fish, which I've never done. So I want to do that. Can you just sort of expand on the science of it? I've never heard science of fly fishing. Oh my gosh. It's so great. So, I mean, because everywhere you go, it depends on what um, insect is hatching, what the fish are eating, how they're eating, where they're eating. Are they eating off the top of the water? Are they eating on the bottom? How do you get the right fly to the right to the fish so that mm-hmm. they actually will bite? I mean, it's it's just fascinating. Like you can't just go out there and um, throw something out there. Right. You actually have to look at what's around you, collect grabs, look at the bugs, see what's hatching, make sure you put a fly that looks like what's out there, and get it to the fish in the right spot. So there's not um, just watching how the water flows, knowing where the fish will be. 
is not, I never knew this. I never thought anything about it, but following where the insects go, where the water is going and how deep it is and where the fish will be um, eating. I mean, there's a whole, so many layers. So many yeah. layers. Oh my gosh. It's like a parfait. <laughs> Who knew? I it had is. no idea. Who knew? Oh yep. my gosh. That's awesome. My final question for you, Dr. Wall, is mm-hmm. what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? I would say to sort of two things is to find a mentor mm-hmm. um, and find someone who will give you advice that you don't want to hear, who will help you in your career, um, will help you maybe without even helping themselves and be selfless in their advice. And I think that, especially in academics, I think it's incredibly important. Um, and I have benefited greatly from my mentors that I've had. And then also once you're in practice, really building a team around you that you trust and then building a team that you can work with, you definitely spend more time with the people at work than you do with the people at home. And so mm-hmm. being in a, a place that you like with people that you admire and that push you, and then you know having your nurse, your medical assistant, your admin assistant, being people that you like, uh, and that work well with you is incredibly important. Wow. Dr. Wall, we did it. We, we, we did it. <laughs> Thank you so we much. Did. We did. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm just so glad I never knew about the science of fly fishing. And now I feel like <laughs> a smarter human. You should try it. It's pretty I know great. I will. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Lindley Wall. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you a new episode next month. <music>